This is Ron Foxcroft, founder of the Fox 40 Whistle. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, Crown Refs Serve the Game. You are listening to the Crown Refs Podcast, the audio experience for basketball officials. officials. Serve the game. Ron Foxcroft is arguably the most successful referee entrepreneur of all time. He recently received Canada's highest honor, the Order of Canada, which honors people whose service shapes our society, whose innovations ignite our imaginations, and whose compassion unites our communities. Ron is the inventor of the Fox 40 P-less whistle, which is now sold in 140 countries and is sanctioned by almost all major sports worldwide. Fox 40, a Canadian company, proudly dominates the worldwide sport and safety whistle industry. Mr. Foxcroft was named Entrepreneur of the Decade by Profit Magazine. Ron officiated the 1976 Olympic gold medal basketball game and enjoyed a distinguished career in the NCAA Men's Division I, highlighted by officiating Michael Jordan's first collegiate game and working the Sweet 16 in 1998. Referee Magazine named Ron as one of the 52 most influential persons in North American officiating history. Ron spent 14 seasons with the NBA observing and evaluating the performance of NBA referees. In 2019, he will serve the NBA as court administrator, working with the Replay Center to administer Coach's Challenge. My interview with Mr. Foxcroft, coming up next. Mr. Foxcroft, I really appreciate your time. I just listed some of your amazing accomplishments in the show notes, and I'm really excited to rewind your story to hear how you got to this point. But before we do, let's start with now. Tell us about your brand, Fox 40, and what you have going on now and into 2020. Well, uh, Paul, uh, we're very, very proud of Fox 40. Uh, it, it was hard to get started. Uh, you know, everywhere I refereed, this is uh, 35 years ago, uh, my whistle with the little P got stuck. Mm. And uh, finally, um, I, I just decided to do something about it, not realizing anything about manufacturing or patents or anything like that. The only thing I'd ever done is blow a whistle while refereeing and um, uh, basically uh, run a trucking company. So uh, uh, it, it, it failed, and um, I hired uh, an engineer, a scientist, a PhD in sound and a music teacher. And um, basically I spent three and a half years with an engineer to design this whistle. It was very, very difficult because we knew what we wanted. We wanted three chambers. We wanted it ultrasonic and we wanted it not to fail, but it had to look, feel and hold like a whistle because some of our, our, our first prototypes were like 14 inches long. And uh, anyway, after three and a half years and $150,000 of borrowed money, I had uh, two prototypes. And my wife said to me, you know, we have a debt of $150,000 and you have two whistles, $75,000 each. I spent uh, two months going everywhere to uh, sell this whistle. Couldn't sell one. And finally, I got a lucky break, got assigned to the Pan American Games in Indianapolis in 1987, booked into the dormitory where all the referees live, and I put my two whistles, $75,000 each, under the pillow. And one night, 
at actually at two o'clock in the morning, I went upstairs in this dormitory and planted my feet against the wall and blew the whistle. And every single referee came running because it was so different. And, um, of course, I woke up everybody, and I've, I've met some of those referees since, and they said, you know, you woke us up, but we forgive you. And um, they all came running, and they said it was this unique sound, and they said, can we buy it? And I said, nope, they're on back order. My wife always told me, if something's on back order, you really want it. Mm-hmm. So we went out on a picnic table in, in that uh, Pan American Games in Indianapolis, and got orders for 20,000 whistles. And, of course, I was in debt for 150000 We had just started our trucking company. And um, 20,000 whistles. And we came home and built a single cavity mold and started selling them. And here we are today. The engineer actually said to me, Ron, we've invented the best whistle in the world, and you have to dedicate yourself to making it better. And every year, Paul, we find an attribute of the whistle to make it better. We have 12 models. We change the colors every single year. It's used for search, rescue, safety, military, police, lifeguards, sports, referee, coaches, and um, and we spend every single year dedicated my team to making it better. Today, we have 200 related products with the Fox 40 brand, and we sell in 140 countries 15,000 whistles a day. Talk to me about some of the differences in your whistle technology. What makes the sound so much different than the the original P-less whistle? Well, we have about 78 patents and trademarks, and I I can't share a whole lot other than saying it's a musical instrument, it's ultrasonic, it's peeless, it's um, easy to blow, and um, we we treat it, uh, our, our quality control here, Paul, treats it as if we're putting out a precision musical instrument. Every whistle that goes out of the door uh, every whistle was manufactured in North America. Every whistle, we've never gone offshore, is it's uh, the quality control. It's a musical instrument, all, ultrasonic, peeless, and the decibels go anywhere from about 120 decibels to uh, oh, about 127. Our sonic blast goes to about 127, and a, a jackhammer, I believe, is about 80 decibels. I think Big Ben in England is about... Uh, 80 decibels so it's um it's got a shrill it penetrates but it it won't hurt your ears because it's designed for the sound to go away from the person that's blowing the whistle so the the sound directional of the sound is away so uh it it can't hurt the person that's blowing the whistle of course if anyone's careless and deliberately blows it into somebody's ear, there, there could be damage. But uh, no, we've spent a lot of time with our engineers and our scientists and, and our staff and uh, to make it, uh, well, the world's most advanced whistle in the world. Now, you say you're always looking to make improvements. Now, is the sound 
actually changing? Are you improving the quality of the sound as well? Well, we have different tones, uh, you know, and, and this is used. You know, in sport, for example, in volleyball and basketball and soccer, they have many fields. So we have uh, a, a different tone on every whistle. The sound is basically the same. The tone is different. For example, the pearl is a low tone. The classic is a higher tone. The uh, sonic blast is a combination of uh, lower and higher and louder and easier to blow. And now we have a brand new whistle. We just came out. It's called the Fusion, F-U-Z-F-U-Z-I-U-N. And um, it's basically the technology. It's a combination between the sonic blast, a loud, loud whistle, and the original classic, which is probably the favorite of many people. We took those two technologies, we fused them together, and now we've got this new whistle, and it's quite exciting. It's called the fusion. So it's a combination of many things, and we find that the uh, a lot of the referees and coaches love it, and safety, of course, for outdoor. The outdoor use is fantastic. Interesting. You know, it's funny. I ref girls lacrosse and field hockey also. And I remember in my first year, I used the classic Fox 40. But that next year, I graduated to the Fox 40 hand whistle. I yes. think that whistle is fantastic. I love having to not hold the whistle in your mouth all game. I feel it helps my patients. Now, how far into Fox 40 did you start developing other products? Well, it was that's a really great question, Paul. Because all we did, all I wanted to do when we designed the uh, original Fox 40 Classic was su supply some of my friends in the NCAA with a whistle that wouldn't fail. And so we made a black classic. Of course, now you probably use the classic finger grip CMG, the cushion mouth grip, and so on. Love but it. we got a phone call from someone and said, you know, my wife would love a colored whistle for safety uh, to put on her keychain. Mm. And so I asked the mold maker, I said, can we make these whistles in different colors? And he said, absolutely, any color that you choose. So almost, I would say, in the first six months, we realized we could make them in colors and then they could go to institutions, to schools, to organizations. Well, then for safety and, and search and rescue and for military and, uh, of course, uh, Marine and, and lifeguards. Well, then we decided, someone said, could we put the logo of our organization on? You know, like last year in the NBA finals, you saw the whistles with the NBA logo on the side. Well, Paul, that was interesting because today, 65% of our 15,000 whistles a day have a logo on the side. And, you know, people love logos. People are proud. Like, I'm sure you're proud of your organization, Crown Ref. And, and you know, people love their logo on the side of their shirts and jackets and, and, and whistles. And, and you'll see in the final four, the refs have the logo of the final four and the NBA and the NFL and, and so on. Everybody 
has their logo. 65% of the whistles sold today have a logo. Yeah, I, I, and I appreciate that. And, and that's why I wanted to call you and personally thank you. You know, it's, it's a real honor to be able to put the Crown Refs logo on Fox 40. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And then I guess it led to other products. When we realized that um, water safety was important, uh, my, my son Dave, who's a CFL ref and part of the NFL Referee de uh, Development Program, uh, one, number 167 in the NFL, number 30 in the CFL, Wow. We started to um, design and engineer marine products. Well, then we got really involved with coaches and referees, and we got to design uh, a 3D patented coaching board for every sport, and then mouth guards and, and so on, and then um, hiking and, and what we call gear for the outdoor market. So I would say within six months to Oh, a, a year in particular, we started to design products. And the criteria was it had to be the best product in their field in the world before we would put the Fox 40 brand on that uh, particular product. We're big in hiking, uh, search and rescue, uh, safety, in particular, uh, marine safety. But uh, hiking, you know, people go out in forests and get lost. And we started to get a, uh, a program going uh, called Hug a Tree. We work with an organization on Hug a Tree. We work with the uh, U.S. Ski Patrol. Uh, we, we work with so many organizations that ask us to design products that, that fit their needs. So I would say, in summary, we're big in safety, search and rescue, military, police, hiking, and, of course, sport. I know your passion early on was to become a professional football player and a quarterback in the CFL. If you could just map out your early years as a young man transitioning from being a football player to then becoming a basketball official. Oh, you're right. I love football. My one son has worked for the Buffalo Bills and the NFL and the chain crew for 26 years. My other son, Dave, has worked six great cups, which is our Super Bowl. And my other son is a golfer, Ronnie. He's a zero handicap golfer. <laughs> and um, I love football. And uh, my dad bought me season tickets for the Hamilton Tiger Cats in 1953 when I was a little boy. So I went to school, played quarterback, absolutely loved it. I also played basketball, baseball, hockey. You know, we're, we're in Canada. Everybody plays hockey, loved hockey. But uh, I really loved football. Well, I hurt my back playing high school football. And back then, medical science wasn't, <laughs> Paul, what it is today. You went to the family doctor, he taped it up, and he said, uh, be careful. <laughs> so I couldn't play football anymore, and um, I was hindered by a sore, a sore back. So I decided to, after the, the school year to get into umpire and baseball. Absolutely loved it. And one of the coaches said to me, his name was Frank Buchanan, he said, you know, Ron, I saw you play basketball. You're a pretty good baseball umpire. Have you ever thought of of getting into basketball officiating. 
And he took me to the clinic where I met a fellow named Kitch McPherson. Kitch brought Great name, by the way. Kitch. Oh, I just want to say oh, that one more time. Kitch yeah, McPherson. Kitch. Uh, short Kitch. for Kitchener. <laughs> and, and Kitch brought Ibo to Canada. And of course, Ibo, you know, one rule, one interpretation, greatest teachers of basketball referee rules basketball rules anywhere on the planet. I've never known an organization that uh, conduct better clinics than Ibo, Tom Lopes, Donnie Epley. And anyway, I got working with Kitch and really loved it and, and passed the test. I'm 17 years old, couldn't wait to get my first game, which was a CYO game. And I went out and did my CYO game. I got paid 75 cents. Wow. scared was scared to death, Paul, scared to death, using a pee whistle. And um, after the game, the organizer of the CYO said to me, here's 75 cents. We want change because you're really bad. Mm. And I was devastated. You know, I put a lot of work into this clinic and so on. So, you know, uh, I, I felt a failure, but then again, mom and dad always told me, no such a thing as failure if you treat it as a learning experience. So Kitch said, go back out there and do better. Well, you know, that year I, um, I worked every single night, uh, the equivalent to CYO games, church games, you know, uh, real minor games. Worked really hard. On weekends, I worked three games on a Saturday and three games on a Sunday. And um, boy, oh boy, by February, this was November, by February, I felt that I was improving. I still wasn't very good. Well, then a break happened. You know, Kitch told me, go out and watch as many college games as you possibly can. So I went out in February to McMaster University and uh, they were playing a, a game and it was a two-person game. A referee got sick before the game and they were about to cancel the game. And Kitch told me one thing, always keep your stuff in the trunk. You never know. You never know when a game's going to break out. Exactly, Paul. My stuff was in the trunk. I went down on the floor and I said to the two coaches who be, later became very good friends, you know, as, as much as uh, referees can socialize with coaches in the off season. And I said, I'm a licensed referee and you don't have to cancel this game. I'll referee this game. And they said, where's your stuff? I said, it's in the trunk. I went out, put it on, did the game. This is a college game. And um, one of the coaches called Kitch and said, we had this kid, Fox something, and um, he was pretty good. Why don't you hire him to do university games? Kitch called me and he said, you know, one of these coaches think you did a pretty good job. And uh, really and truly, Paul, I, I don't think I really did that good a job. But uh, nevertheless, uh, if someone offers you a game, you're going to do the game. You know, uh, one thing in officiating, the word no does not exist. And I learned that. 
the word no, that the assigner has to count on you when he calls, and today it's electronic, but when he called then, you can't say no, because you know what? It's not always the, the most qualified person that gets the assignment, it's the person that's available at the time. I learned that early. Anyway, he hired me. I started refereeing university college ball when I was 18. And lo and behold, by the time I was 21, I did the national championship. I'll never forget it. Two-person game. I work with a gentleman named Len Parisi. And, you know, everybody in officiating, Paul, you need two things. You need a mentor and you need a coach. The mentor picks you up when things are going wrong. The coach gives you constructive criticism when you're doing things wrong. And sometimes it can be the same person. Uh, not always, but sometimes a mentor and a coach can be the same person. Lenny was that one person. He picked me up when things were wrong, and he uh, coached me when I was doing things bad. And uh, he just said to me when we did that championship game, the national championship, he said, look, you do the running and I'll do the talking. And I got through that game, and things started to really uh, take off after that. Uh, Kitsch said, get your FIBA license. And I got my FIBA license, and lo and behold, as soon as I got my FIBA license, got assigned to work the world championships in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. That was in 1974. Two years later, got assigned to work the Olympics. In Montreal, I arrived in Montreal and they said, well, you're Canadian. Canadians don't know too much about refereeing basketball, so you're getting one game. I got 11 games, Paul, including the gold medal game uh, between United States, uh, Coach Dean Smith, Phil Ford, Adrian Dantley, and Yugoslavia. And... um, and, and while I was in Montreal, Dan Woldridge said, you better think about uh, refereeing in the NCAA. Well, Jack Matten, uh, a fellow referee in the ACC, uh, was the supervisor of referees for the Sunbelt Conference. And he called and he said, I understand you did the uh, gold medal game. How would you like to work in the Sunbelt Conference in the NCAA? And of course, you know, Kitch had already told me, never say no. Mm-hmm. And I joined the Sunbelt Conference in uh, 1977, and uh, the rest is history. So just to clarify, you went from the gold medal game and you jumped right into Division One. I. I did, and it That's wasn't great. that easy because, you know, uh, I, I was never allowed by Kitch to get a fat head or to get complacent after working the uh, gold medal game. I went to his kitchen the day after the gold medal game, and he sat me down, and he critiqued my work in the uh, gold medal Olympic game for about an hour and gave me a list to take away on what I could do better and what I worked on. Well, then when I went into the Sunbelt Conference, Paul, Um, I was amazed and scared and nervous because officiating basketball is a life learning experience. 
And to be quite honest about everything, I was not very good in my first year in the uh, Sunbelt Conference. It was sort of overwhelming. And some of the coaches would say to me, are you Canadian? Why are you not refereeing that violent, slippery surface game hockey? <laughs> and um, it was quite intimidating. It was quite overwhelming. But, you know, you're never a failure if you, if you take every single game and treat it as a learning experience, which I did. And um, I worked very, very hard, um, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, very grateful to refereeing partners who ended up to be mentors, teachers, coaches. And they told me there's no borders in sport. Hmm. There's no borders in sport officiating, in particular basketball. And I work with some great officials, including Dr. Henry Nichols, uh, David Dodge, and people uh, like that, that that taught me the business, the real business of officiating and ended up, uh, Dan Woldridge was, was a great mentor, Charlie Bloodworth, Dick Pace, worked in the Big Ten, and uh, ended up working in six conferences, Joe DeBonis and Brad Tracy and and had some great, great teachers, mentors, partners, supervisors, Jimmy Hutter, and uh, watched a lot of games, watched a lot, watched uh, Joey Crawford, watched Dick Pavetta, watched Steve Javi, and um, uh, it was, uh, you know, a great learning experience working in the NCAA as a Canadian uh, in, in six conferences. Uh, worked four NCAA tournaments, worked several conference championship games, worked several NITs, uh, ended up, I believe, in 1998 working the Sweet 16 in Greensboro, which was uh, an amazing thrill with uh, Don Rutledge. Don Rutledge was was amazing, uh, gave the best pregame I've ever been associated with. And, then, you know, Paul, I learned then your pregame in your post game is so important as a, a, a learning tool. You have to go into every game with a wonderful, and, and Jerry Dunaghy uh, gave uh, great pregames. And, and, and you had to go into every game with the right attitude, ready to officiate, ready to concentrate, nothing else on your mind for that two-hour period, that 40-minute game, there can be nothing else on your mind. And the way to take everything out of your mind, out of your life, other than the game, is a great pregame. The other thing I learned, your postgame. And I learned after every game to go into the locker room before you grab a Coke and say, what could we have done better? I, I uh, ended every single game by going into the locker room and saying, what could we have done better? Yeah, plus that's where you're going to really grow and be able to take away, you know, the, the main points from the game and be able to apply it for the next game as in those pre and post game discussions. I'm glad you said that because I would go in and say, what could we have done better? And then I'd leave the game and sometimes, you know, being a Canadian, 
people would say to me, you know, you've done some pretty big games. What was the biggest game? And I always give the same answer from the heart. The next game. Mm. The next game I'm assigned and giving the privilege mm. and the opportunity to work another game. If, if you get a privilege and an opportunity to work another game, it means somebody believes in you. I love that perspective. You know, we get paid to be on a basketball court. So every game is a blessing and we should just enjoy each one and try to do the best job we can for that particular game. In looking back, uh, the greatest joy was uh, the people you meet. Uh, your fellow officials, coaches, players. It's a, it's a real privilege to work a game of basketball, and we should treat it that way. We're not the stars. People definitely don't come to watch us, but it's a great privilege. But better than working a big game is the opportunity to meet great people. And, and you know, I have meet, met so many through officiating, through being a member of NASO, through being a member of IBO. I have met so many wonderful, wonderful people thanks to the game of basketball. You're absolutely right. You know, through Crown Refs, we try to give a lot of tips and strategies to try to help basketball officials grow and reach their full potential. But the best piece of advice I could give about um, improving your game is to be a great partner. Be a great partner. And, you know, when people say, what do I need? Well, you need people communication skills and you need a mentor and a coach. It, you know what? Take away all the complications because someone's going to teach you the rules and someone's going to teach you the mechanics. What they're not going to teach you, you have to bring to the party, is work ethic, passion, love for the game, and two ears and one mouth to use proportionately. Hmm. When I first heard your name, Ron Foxcroft, I knew you were a former Division One official who invented the whistle that we all been using for years, but I didn't know you were from Canada. And you spoke about being the first Canadian to officiate Division One men's college basketball. You must have been real inspiring to other Canadian refs at that time, you know, being a, a real pioneer for Canada. I hope so, uh, Paul, because, you know, the basketball up here is second to hockey. So it's, it's really, really hard to break into basketball because hockey is everything in, in, in Canada. And at, sometimes, you know, they, they looked at me as if I was a little bit odd because I love basketball and referee basketball. But you know what? I, I, I think it is. I think what it proves to everybody Anybody can do it if you bring those attributes to the to the game. And, and, you know, the attributes I talk about, work ethic, passion, love for the game, sacrifice. The other thing you need, I was never home in 25 years on a Saturday night. Always refereed a game on a Saturday night. So you need a good partner. You need a good family. You know, my wife, Marie... She comes from a basketball background, played on a great high school team where her sister was point guard and went on to um, be point guard in the Olympics. So, you know, you, you got to have 
a, a good support mechanism around you. You have to have a great employer that understands that your love and your passion for the game. But, you know, you got to bring something to the table and that's sacrifice, passion, work ethic and the ability to learn and the more important, the ability to listen. Just want to take a quick 30 second time out to tell the audience about the Crown Refs Team Store, which is now available online, produced by Point Three Basketball. We currently have the short sleeve hoodie, the Crown Refs backpack, a fadeaway long sleeve, a graphic t-shirt, a hustle short sleeve shirt, and dry woven training shorts. We offer them in black, white, and gray. If you've gotten any value at all from the Crown Refs content or the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you supported the brand. You can go to crownrefs.com backslash shop. Now, back to the podcast. So, Mr. Foxcroft, you came up on the scene and changed the game in 1987 at the Pan American Games when you introduced your new whistle technology called the Fox 40. What was it like being a successful Division I official, but then having a business within the industry at the same time? How did you navigate those two channels? It was really hard. And and yes, (laughs) a lot of people have told me, The Fox 40 has changed the sound of sport around the world. I'll give you an example. I was over in uh, Germany. Uh, I was in Amsterdam, went over to Switzerland. And of course, everything on TV there is soccer. And every time I went into an establishment and turned on a TV, there was a soccer game on and someone blowing the whistle. And it was a Fox 40. It, it kind of like your heart kind of shudders a little bit. You kind of go, well, it's a funny feeling. You turn on a TV and you're sitting in Munich, Germany, and they're blowing a whistle that was made in North America that your people made, that the team made. It's, it's really something. But um, being a Canadian, uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was difficult. And uh, it was challenging because, you know, everybody thought I should be refereeing that uh, slippery surface game hockey. But um, it was uh, it was amazing. And I'll just reinforce the most amazing thing about it is, A, there's no borders in sport officiating, particularly basketball. And the people you meet, uh, I have made life friends, life associates but it was really hard to run my business because we have a very large trucking company and of course fox 40 has developed into becoming a very large company so what i would do and then i had a family at the time uh, i had a couple boys that um, we were we were raising and and ronnie came along and um, i'll tell you then it was uh, there were 10 45 p.m flights and there were 5 a.m flights and I came back to work after every single game. I learned where uh, the payphones were. Always had a dime in my pocket to call the business and call home. So before every game uh, or before the game, uh, during the day, I'd call the office. And um, I'd work the game. After the game, I'd call my family. I'd always have a dime in my pocket to get to a payphone. There was no email. There was no cell phones back then. There were in the end, but uh, not not in the prime of my career, which was in the 80s and, and in the 90s. And uh, But I, I flew back on these 5 a.m. flights into the airport, came to work, sometimes would go right back to the airport at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the secrets was I learned to sleep on an airplane. 
on a on a one hour flight, I could sleep for 55 minutes. So that was a secret, uh, learning to sleep on the airplanes. And of course, I, I would uh, take Friday off and uh, always work Saturday, always work Sunday, but took Friday off, was in the office all day Friday. And um, most Divi D Division One conferences didn't play on Friday except the Ivy League. And uh, so I was able to get Fridays off, Saturday, Sunday, workday, back at it again on Monday. It was very, very difficult. The secret was call the office often, call home often, and keep a lot of dimes in your pocket for pay phones. So what was it like um, having partners that you worked with and then having to transition those partners into customers? Oh, <laughs> You know, uh, that part, that was special. Um, I made sure all the top referees in the world in their sport got a Fox 40 in their hands. We never paid anybody ever to use a Fox 40. I wanted it to be their decision. So the strategy was pick some of the best referees in the world in their sport. For example, the first NFL referee was Jerry Austin to use a Fox 40, and then he graduated to a Fox 40 CMG cushion mouth grip. But I knew Jerry because he refereed with me in the Sun Belt. And so he got it in the NFL. Dr. Henry Nichols, he got it in the NCAA. Many great referees got it into the State High School Federation. Then we looked around for FIFA, for soccer referees and for lacrosse referees and field hockey referees. And we made sure, didn't pay them, but we made sure they had a Fox 40 in their hands so they could use it. And you know what? It was a great strategy because some of the best referees in the world were using a Fox 40 and it was their choice. It was their choice to use a Fox 40. And of course, people would see that and notice that and then all of a sudden, the NBA started to use it. The NCAA basketball started to use it. The State High School Federation. And we couldn't keep up. It was just, it was amazing. And, you know, it was, I got to tell you a funny story. A good friend of mine, a, a, a referee of enormous uh, capabilities, Mike Kitts, he, he worked the Final Four. And um, he used to tape his whistle and sometimes he'd put a pipe holder around the front of his whistle to create that cushion mouth grip. So then we designed a cushion mouth grip. Funny thing to that day, to the end of his career, he still taped his whistle. <laughs> <laughs> I got the idea for the cushion mouth grip from Mike Kitts, uh, putting tape around his whistle. But even when we invented the cushion mouth grip and we sell literally hundreds of thousands of cushioned mouth grip, <laughs> whistles, Mike Kitts refereed his whole career by taping his uh, whistle. And we often laugh about that. But I just, you know, another official that taught me a lot about the business of officiating. Very interesting story there. I, I call the um, the cushioned mouth guard like a, a tooth pillow because it's yes. just so comfortable. <laughs> you know, back in the old days, people used to buy the rubber pipe tip holder They'd light it up with a cigarette lighter and then put it over their 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 whistle to create that cushion effect. So we just designed a mold 
uh, it's called a coal mold so that we made this cushion. The cushioned uh, mouth grip whistle is so popular. Uh, I'm not too sure how many of our, our whistles that go out have a cushion, but it's a big number of people that use the cushioned mouth grip. I love it. Um, you know, I find within the craft of officiating, there are so many parallels that transfer over and can help you in everyday life. For instance, refereeing has helped my patience, my decision-making, my communication, you know, my professionalism, on and on and on. What are some of the core skills that made you a great referee where you were able to directly transfer over into the business world? I'm so glad you said that because the things that you learn officiating can be transferred exactly the way you said it into life and into your career. And you said them, um, patience, leadership, people communication skills, people listening skills, uh, judgment, working on judgment. Um, you, you said them, you said them all. And I think one of the things is the, the key is the ability to listen. You know, when the coach has a problem, sometimes the best way to diffuse the problem is to employ good people listening skills. Sometimes, Paul, you know, when you see it one way and a coach sees it the other way, all he really wants is an ear, which is respect. And that's sometimes diffuses the most volatile situations. So all the things that you just listed, um, I, I applaud you for, for listing those attributes because all of those attributes are things you, you learn as you, as you get experience in an official and you get an opportunity to transfer those skills into life, into your business, into your career, into bringing up your kids, into mentoring basketball players, uh, athletes, football players, uh, hockey players, lacrosse players. They're all transferable. However, you've got to bring something to the table. And, and I said this earlier, we can't teach work ethic. We can't teach hustle. We can't teach sacrifice. A referee and, and the most important thing, uh, yes, we make money. Let's not hide the fact that we do get a game fee. But on top of the game fee, uh, what we can't teach is love and passion for the game that you officiate. And that's, if you can't bring love and passion uh, and, and you're just in it for the money, then uh, we have a statistic out there. Uh, we lose about 70% uh, of our officials after year three. Uh, and one of the reasons is they couldn't bring work ethic, hustle, passion, sacrifice, and people communication skills to their job. The other problem, too, and I'm concerned about this, why we lose officials. It's not just because of what I just said in, in the latter. Um, coach abuse, fan abuse, and parental abuse. In hockey, 
Uh, we're losing a lot of referees up here. Seventy percent of the hockey referees we lose after year three because of parental abuse. In Canada, everybody wants their child to be uh, Wayne Gretzky. In the United States, I'm sure that many parents want their child to be Michael Jordan. And we know there's only one Michael Jordan. I refereed Michael Jordan's very first college game, I believe in November 1981, when he was just Mike out of Wilmington, North Carolina. But not every child is going to be a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James. So I'm really concerned about our industry uh, when we lose all of these referees uh, after their uh, third year of officiating because of abuse. Wow. According to NASA, 70% of new officials quit after just three years. You know, just listening to Mr. Foxcroft reveal that staggering statistic, it's very disappointing, but it's exciting too. It's exciting because I believe with your continued support and involvement in Crown Refs that we are going to start to put a dent in that number. And mark my words, we will make a decrease. And I think we have the opportunity to make a real difference within our industry for years to come. And I believe there's two main reasons for this problem. Number one, the sportsmanship at youth sporting events can be very poor at times as we've all seen and number two i just don't think our referees have the right support system that's given them the tools to handle the difficult situations that come with this avocation but with crown refs now they do all we have to do is continue to share promote and spread the word i really appreciate mr foxcroft for bringing the statistic making me aware of it because i'm adding it to our mission statement thanks for listening So you were the first Canadian ref in the States. You've invented a whistle. You're obviously real early in the game and at the forefront of a lot of big things with refereeing. What do you see next? Is there anything right now in the referee world exciting you? Well, yes, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, and, and I'm going to surprise you here. I'm really excited about all the technology that's available in, in the officiating industry. Now, I'm going to qualify that and say, you know, part of sport is players make mistakes, uh, coaches make mistakes, officials make mistakes. Uh, I think some of the technology that's available to us, especially as a teaching tool, is wonderful. When I started officiating, we didn't have all the technology that's available to us today. For example, uh, we didn't have the technology where we could work a game and then go into the locker room and watch a replay of that game instantly. I think that that's amazing that you can work a game, you can go home, and immediately you can watch that game and work on all the areas that you need improvement. That type of technology is absolutely fantastic. I just hope that all the advances we're making in technology doesn't take over the game. And, and, you know, like we have to allow players to make mistakes, coaches make mistakes, administrators make mistakes, and, and uh, referees to make mistakes. So uh, technology is fantastic. Let's not have technology dominate the business of sport. I, I think there's probably a tipping point here. On technology, we, we reached a tipping point here in the Canadian Football League where they allowed six challenges per game. 
Well, that was ruining the game for the coaches, the players, and the fans. And it was taking away, like we were taking two minutes off six times a game. And and so they they corrected that. We have a very, very innovative commissioner in the CFL. And he said, you know, we're, we're ruining the game here. We're ruining the experience for the fans. And, and they cut it down to, I think they're allowed two, uh, one per team challenge per game. So technology is wonderful, but... Let's really study. Now, the NBA this year are, are experimenting with a coach's challenge. And, um, you know, they spent a lot of time studying the aspect of the coach's challenge, and they're allowing one per game. If you get it right, you don't get another one. And that'll be very, I'm, I'm very excited because I'm working for the NBA as a courtside administrator to work with the replay center on certain replays and coaches challenge. So I'm very, very excited because, you know, you can never stop growing and you can never stop learning. And the fact that they're willing to try that, kudos to the NBA, kudos to the NFL. The NFL now are allowing a coaches challenge on pass interference. I think they're allowing one per game, but I could be corrected on that. So technology is great, but let's keep the technology under control and allow the players and the coaches and the refs to administrate the game. Find a happy medium, right? You got it. Happy medium is a, is a good way to describe it, Paul. So I know you were an observer in the NBA for 14 years. Now you have a new role as an administrator. Just talk about your experience and time served in the NBA. It's brand new. And we're not really allowed to say too much about it because it's a first year. I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's a pilot program, but what it is uh, this year, as I explained earlier, there's a coach's challenge and we sit, the courtside administrators sit right at center court at the scorer's table and assist the replay with the, the replay center with the administration of the coach's challenge. Also, we sit there and we um, uh, assist and, and I guess coordinate with the replay center in New Jersey uh, with certain replay triggers that happen in an NBA game. I'm very excited about that because of a couple of things, passion for the game, love for the game, and I got the best seat in the house. I'm sitting row one at the scorer's table at center court. For someone that loves basketball, that's a dream job, and I'm really, really happy to do that. That'll make my 15th year in the NBA and, uh, you know, when I retired uh, from a bas- being uh, a Division One official, I missed the game. I missed the locker room and I missed the people. I really, really missed the people. The NBA called and said, would you like to become a, an observer? And I said, absolutely. Took my wife to the games, took my family to the games and spent 14 years. Well, now they've created this new position and I can hardly contain myself. They've allowed me in Toronto to share, job share the job with my son, Steve, who's a FIBA referee. So that's the other thing. I get to job share that uh, responsibility with my son, Steve. And, you know, when you can share something with your son and, you know, I I share my love for sport with my son, Ronnie, my son, Dave. And uh, it's a great thing to share the job responsibility as a courtside administrator with my son, Steve. I can't wait for the NBA season.
Really appreciate you sharing that. It's been a pleasure to, to uh, listen to you speak. Um, my next question is, what are some of the best pieces of advice you've gotten over your career from either a mentor, a family member, or a friend, whoever it was, where you heard this piece of information, you processed it, then applied it, and you were able to execute it for yourself? You know, the best advice I got was from Kitch McPherson and later some of my partners. And they said to me, listen, Ron, you got to go out there. You got to work hard. You got to remember people did not come to witness you officiate. So you've got to work hard. The best referee is the referee that's never noticed. And uh, work hard on your people communication skills. And I guess... You know, I, I said this early when we started to talk. The best advice I, I got was find a mentor, find a coach. I found that person in Kitch McPherson. And then I extended that to many of my partners. And um, as I said, if I was giving advice in, in a concentrated version, I would say get a mentor, get a coach, use two ears and work hard on your people listening advice and uh, you've got a good opportunity to be a successful referee now i'm looking at a picture of your family right now and there's seven guys with referee uniforms talk about developing officials what does it mean to you being the catalyst for your team and grooming such a large family of officials heart throbbing it's absolutely heart-throbbing. It really is. I've got uh, grandsons. I've got nephews. I've got sons. They're all officials. And I didn't uh, navigate that. It just happened. Um, you know, I, I, if, if you force somebody into the business of officiating, it'll never work. It's got to be their decision. And I can honestly say to you, Paul, and Crown Refs, I never forced a family member, but I think they witnessed the joy, the pride that I have in officiating. The joy and the pride I have with the officiating industry. And I think the one thing that they've witnessed, and kudos to them, the life friendships I've made from being in the business of officiating, I think that might have been their attraction. Plus the fact that, you know, they're football and basketball officials, and, and of course it goes without saying, they love football, they love basketball, they witnessed firsthand the life friendships I've made from the business of officiating. And I can honestly say that was their attraction. And um, they're all enjoying it. And they're all at different levels. And that's the other thing, Paul. You know what? Uh, we have to allow officials to find the level where they're most comfortable and where they, they have the most fun. Uh, if you have the most fun uh, officiating 12-year-olds uh, in, in club league sport and you enjoy it, then that's what you should do. If you aspire to go to a higher level, Division One, the pros, then you should aspire to do that. But I think 
every official has to find a level where they they create the most enjoyment for themselves. And there's nothing like coming out of a game that you've officiated and you know in your heart you gave it your best. And that's all you can do. You can just give it 100%. And if you can look in the mirror and say, I came out of that game and gave it 100%, then kudos to you. I just want to say in closing, I have to admit, my daughter Alexia has a peeless whistle in her stash of toys that she doesn't use. You know, one of those cheap party whistles. So after yes. we get off the phone, I'm going to dunk it directly in the garbage. I'm just letting you know my family has your full support. Oh, thank you very much. God bless Alexia. How old is Alexia? She's two. Just had her second uh, birthday party, and I'm going to replace her um, cheap whistle with the Fox 40. And also, when she goes to school, Paul, promise me you'll put a Fox 40 on her school bag to remind her to always be safe. Done deal, and I'm getting it in pink. Okay. All right. We're going to send you a brand new pink whistle, a classic and a classic CMG. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Thank you so much. You're very generous. Thank you so much, Mr. Foxcroft. Uh, Paul, thank you for everything that you're doing at Crown Refs to promote the officiating industry. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I hope you're enjoying it. Love it. I know I've sent you the um, the newsletter, and I'm not sure if you've heard the podcast. What have What do you kind of think about? what I'm what I'm doing and where you see me taking it. You know what? I'll tell you something. What you're doing, uh, you're a voice for the officiating industry. God bless you. There are not too many voices out there for the officiating industry. I'm most familiar, as you know, with NASO, who do so much for the officiating industry on this planet. I'm familiar with IBO and Paul Crown refs are doing a great thing. We need to promote our officiating industry. We need to tell good news stories. We need to, through Crown refs, we need to educate the public on how dedicated sports officials are to their sport. And um, God bless Crown refs for what they're doing. There's a big future for what you're doing keep it going keep it growing because our industry needs more crown refs keep it up <laughs> wow you're giving me chills thanks a lot <laughs> thank you paul it's my pleasure it's it's funny you know you mentioned about providing more perspective for fans and and coaches kind of not knowing what we do because we haven't been humanized we've always taken the approach stay out of the way, be invisible. And I, and I agree with most of that, but in the 2020 world where the camera's on, we have to start communicating with that world. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. We sure do. People don't understand us, Paul. So we need, as I said, one of the attributes of a good official is uh, a listening quality and people listening communication skills. 
So let's keep it out there. Let's get the message out there through Crown Refs that we are part of the game. You've got to have great players, great coaches, great administrators. We have to have unwavering support for the officiating industry. But we also need great officials. And there's so many great officials out there, and we need to tell their story. The other thing, Paul, you need to have a Fox 40 colored whistle on your keychain, on your wife's keychain, on Alexia's school bag when she goes to school. What's your favorite color, and what's your wife's favorite color? Um, well, I, I'm good with the black because that's okay. Just and yeah. your wife? My wife would love a purple one. You got it. You got it. It's coming your way. Watch for it. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> let me ask you. Let me ask you this question from from student to mentor. Um, yeah, obviously, we just talked about Crown Refs. You know, it's been a content brand thus far, trying to grow an audience, trying to um, grow awareness. Any advice for me as I um, start to mature with Crown Refs and kind of turn it in, into a business? Is there any tips you can give me? Uh, yes. Never give up. Never give up. You have a vision. Uh, you need a business plan. If you don't have a business plan, then you have to plan to fail. So you need a business plan. Uh, the other thing, you have to be patient. You know, I've been in the trucking business for 35 years, and we didn't make it real quick. Uh, it's uh, Being in business is, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So have a really good business plan. You need a business plan for this year, and you need a business plan for three years, and you need a business plan for five years. And you need to know where you're going. The key word is be patient. Uh, surround yourself with people and advice that are much smarter than you at what you do. That My secret is with my 200 and almost 250 employees, every single person is smarter than me at what they do and that is really really important to surround yourself with very smart people now the thing you have to do though by surrounding yourself and they don't have to necessarily be employees you know they can be advisors they can be mentors they can be coaches they can be people that are smarter at what they do in a particular subject but you have to create the environment for them to succeed and what I've done here is I've created an environment in our trucking company and in Fox 40 for all my people to succeed. But that environment has to be key for them to succeed and, and also my people communication skills with them. We talk about their strengths and we talk about their weaknesses and we talk about how we can grow their strengths and get better going from good to better. And we talk about their weaknesses and my weaknesses where we can correct our weaknesses and get better. And, and you know, I look at myself in the mirror every day and say, you know, this is a, this is a flaw I need to work on and um, identify flaws and treat it as a learning experience. So all those things, the most important thing is work ethic, uh, uh, being loyal to your family, and Rome wasn't built in the day, being patient and surrounding yourself with smart people. 
Crown Refs Podcast is brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. If you're looking for that clean, professional look on the court, there's only one way to do it. Log on to NeatTucks.com and order yours today. Neat Tucks and Crown Refs, serving the game. Thanks for listening. Please go share this with a fellow official. Make sure you subscribe, and it would also mean the world to me if you left a review on Apple Podcast. Have a great day.